One of my great duties and passions as a pastor and as a Christian man is to see as many men and women and boys and girls glorifying God as possible. I want to be like the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 where he talks about admonishing every man and teaching every man so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It is a passion, it is a duty, it is a calling, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. I, 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 I want to be there myself so I can be in that place like the psalmist in Psalm 135, the psalm we read this morning, where I am giving God glory unreservedly. And I want to be in that place where I can come alongside of other people, come alongside of you, gathering together, wanting, longing for, doing anything possible by the grace of God to, to have people be in that place, to have you be in that place where you are giving glory to God, you are honoring God, you are praising God. Like the psalmist in Psalm 135, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord. And he's full throttle, pushing, unleashing his affections toward God and his greatness. But what's interesting about Psalm 135 is, he's not praising God only for the good gifts God has given to him personally. He is praising God, if you will, for being God. He's praising God, as it even says, for choosing, in verse 4, for electing Jacob. Not only that, in that psalm that we read earlier, he's praising God even for being the God who strikes down, in verse 8. The God who provides, the God who chooses, the God who strikes down. How about this, even as the psalm says? The God who does whatever He pleases. And so many times, we're not okay with that. We struggle with that. As if to say, how dare He do that? Well, as a pastor and as a Christian... I don't want you to say that. And I want to find everyone I possibly can who thinks that and, and, and is sensing that how dare he do that and, and to say, no, no, let's see, this is who God is. By nature of the fact that he's God, he's free to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. And so when we read a psalm like 135, we want to be like the psalmist praising Him because we're okay with God being God. We're not only okay with it, we are thrilled about Him being God and He alone. Not like the other gods that people make who are controllable, who don't decree things, who don't strike anybody down. He's different. And so when we come to a passage like Romans 9.18 that we've looked at recently as we've been studying through the book of Romans where it says, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. We don't have a beef with it. We're not upset with it. We've come to expect God to act like God. That doesn't mean we don't have questions. Because then we can be like the psalmist and we can unleash our hearts, if you will, in praising Him for being different than all of the gods that we have made and being different from us. It is my driving pastoral passion 
And if I weren't a pastor, it would be my driving Christian passion to find those who are not giving God the glory that He deserves and to do everything I can as an instrument by God's grace to help them give Him the glory that He deserves. And I, I, I want you to give Him that kind of glory. And, and I'm hoping you not only give Him that kind of glory and you're not only okay with who He is, but you're thrilled about who He is, that you also are on mission to be a disciple maker and being okay, no thrilled with God being free to be God. Well, that's my way of introducing this question and answer time that we started last week and we'll finish this morning. We've been studying Romans 9. Romans 9 has come to a close. Romans 9 is about the sovereign grace of God. That is the free grace of God that He distributes as He sees fit. A lot of questions are anticipated in Romans 9 and the Apostle Paul answers them. But I know there's actually even more questions that the Bible addresses. And so what I don't want to do is just say, okay, we preached the text, we worked through it together, you've got it down... Time to move on. And if you still have questions, get over it. <laughs> okay? I mean, I kind of want to do that. But, <laughs> but, but I'm a pastor. A pastor, pastor means shepherd. I, I want to say, uh, well, what, what can I do to help you to, to get across the creek bed, if you will? Even if it means a staff. <laughs> okay? Let, let's work through these questions that we have. So a, a few weeks ago, we, we put out an email, Romans9 at OmahaBibleChurch.org. And, and, and some of you have verbally given me questions. And, and so even though it's not our norm around here to do this, uh, I, I just want to answer questions that you've submitted. And uh, if you need a real sermon, quote unquote, um, there's probably a thousand of them online. Or you could stop at the bookstore and get a quote unquote real sermon. Um, for the sake of let, let's, let's work through this issue. So I feel awkward because I don't necessarily like doing question and answer times week in and week out. But for the sake of the glory of God, ultimately, I want to do this this morning. And uh, I trust it will be helpful. We looked at five questions last time. We need to look at more this morning. I'm going to start with number six. If you're just starting with us today, it can be your number one. That's fine. Hopefully I won't confuse you um, as we go. But Romans 9 is what we're dealing with, that God freely, not because of what we do or, or, or what he foresees us doing, even when they're in the womb, Jacob and Esau, he extends his grace sovereignly, freely, and he withholds it. Brings up a lot of questions. So what I said week in and week out was, I think we should just take Romans 9, 18 at face value. I just think we should take Romans 9 at face value. God is free. God is free to do whatever He wants to do. And He's not trying to be a universalist. No one deserves His grace, but He does extend it. But He doesn't extend it universally. And that's a hard truth sometimes to deal with. So here's a question. How does this perspective relate to Christians who've come before us in church history? And a simple answer to that would be, overly simplified, do we stand alone in saying, you know what, this is just true, let's take it at face value? The answer is no. An uh, oversimplified answer would be Protestant Reformation. Now, we could even go back before that, but that would be a good place for us to have fellowship. But you could go back to Augustine, who's before that. And you could go back even before that. But some standouts would be Protestant Reformation standouts. And if we don't identify ourselves with the Protestant Reformation, then I think we're really standing on not thin ice. We're standing on nothing. Because there was a commitment to reclaiming the gospel there. Martin Luther... 
who wrote his famous book, The Bondage of the Will, was writing about these things. He's debating back and forth with Erasmus, the philosopher, and he really takes him to task on this very issue. It's a hard book to read. Maybe you can find a synopsis somewhere. But he's dealing with the same issue back then. In a different book that Martin Luther wrote, or uh, uh, writing, listen to what he says. All things whatsoever arise from and depend upon the divine appointments whereby it is preordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it. Who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them. Who should be justified and who should be condemned. Maybe moving throughout history a little bit, moving beyond him, we could go to John Calvin, but we don't need to bring ice to Eskimos. Um, it's a no-brainer if you know anything about church history that Calvin would say amen to a straightforward reading of Romans chapter 9. How about John Fox, the famous book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? I read somewhere that that was the, the, the most well-known Eng- book in the English language at one point in time. Fox said this, Predestination is the eternal decrement of God, purposed before in Himself. If we move into the Presbyterian realm, the larger Westminster Catechism, 1688, says this, very well crafted, by the way, God, by an eternal and immutable decree, out of His mere love for the praise of the glory of His grace, to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof, and also according to His own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleases, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath to be for their sin afflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. Well, we've got Luther, Calvin, Fox. We've got the Presbyterians. John Bunyan, how about a Baptist? John Bunyan, we know, famous for Pilgrim's Progress. You need to know that behind Pilgrim's Progress is John Bunyan's theology. John Bunyan also wrote a treatise on reprobation, that God is involved in condemnation. He didn't shy away from it one bit. That's why I love John Bunyan so much and Pilgrim's Progress so much, because he has a big God, sovereignty of God theology behind it. So it's not just... Presbyterians, it's not just Baptists, it's not just Lutherans. If we move into maybe more popular culture, but still church history, Augustus Toplady, that author of that famous song, Rock of Ages, wrote this, God from all eternity decreed to leave some of Adam's fallen posterity or race in their sins and to exclude them from the participation of Christ and His benefits. Look up some of his writings that are non-musical, they're just rich and, and profound theologically. Great, and that's why we end up liking his song so much. Well, I suppose I should include a Methodist for good measure. Uh, <laughs> George Whitfield would have come out of that kind of tradition. George Whitfield, known as a famous evangelist. And George Whitfield, die in the wool, known for a serious commitment to the absolute freedom of God to do what He wants with His own grace. And reading Whitfield is encouraging because of those things. The list could go on, but sometimes I think we're afraid maybe that that this is a new thing. And sometimes it feels like it, and here's why. Because it's not that popular to say you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. 
I did a Google search, and I didn't pay a lot of attention to what I was searching, but I just did a Google search for, I don't even remember what it was now, but famous preachers, famous uh, evangelicals or evangelists or something like that, and it was someone's list. It wasn't a great list. It wasn't a scientific list or anything, but it was their list of those who are the great ones today. I found it very interesting that, to my knowledge, not a single one on the list would be known for a strong commitment to the sovereignty of God, a la Romans chapter 9. So maybe one of the reasons it feels like we're alone sometimes is because we are. Not in 2,000 years of church history, oh, and by the way, you can go back because you just read your Old Testament, because Romans 9 is just quoting Old Testament. But in the here and now, it feels a little lonely. I'm thankful for resurgence in our day for such things. And more and more people are saying, hey, wait a minute. Let's get back to the Bible and and have God be sovereign. I like that. And I'm thankful for that. Well, enough for that question. Let's move on to another. Another question would be, does Romans (laughs) 9... I have to laugh. Okay, these are the biggest words we're going to use, okay? I promise not to use these in every sermon. So if you're visiting, I don't do this every week. Uh, This is a a question I get a lot, though, by our theologues. Um, does Romans 9 support infralapsarianism or supralapsarianism? And you say, laparoscopic what? <laughs> Let me make it easy for you. And these things get birthed out of theological debates, which can be helpful. Infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. That would be a fun thing to talk about at Jimmy John's afterward. Uh, supra means above and infra means below. Let me explain them simply to you. According to one perspective, God in His mind... You know we're in trouble because we're trying to talk about the mind of God. Okay, The Bible doesn't give us these lapsarian views. But because of different debates, we're trying to figure out what did God plan before He did anything? Did He first plan to predestine people, then plan to have the fall, then to provide provision through the cross, then to call people to Himself, then to bring about faith, then to bring about justification... Or did he first in his mind plan the fall and then predestine people and then the list would be the same? Okay? So we'll put it this way. Supralapsarianism, God puts predestination before he plans the fall. Track with me, it's not that difficult. Supra puts predestination at the top and makes it supra. Okay? Infra, fall first the fall of mankind, then predestination after. God is looking at a fallen human race and He's going to choose some and leave others in an effect to condemnation. Those are the two views. And by the way, we do know something about the mind of God. According to Romans 8, 29 and 30, you do have an order of decrees, but it doesn't go this far back. So the first thing I would say is they're both orthodox Historically, both of them would fall within the framework of, of believers who are committed to the gospel, committed to the sovereignty of God, committed to all of these things. So I wouldn't die for either view. But the most popular of the two views amongst the Reformed tradition of those I mentioned earlier, even in the company we might keep, it would be infralapsarianism. Okay? 
when there's big debate in the Synod of Dort, if you're familiar with that, they decided it, it does need to be infralapsarianism. And here's the thinking behind it. And I would believe in infralapsarianism, but I wouldn't die for it. But it makes, this, it makes sense in this sense. God plans to have a fall. Then He chooses to save some um, among the fallen race. And then in time he's going to call them. And then in time they're going to believe. That's the most popular view among those in the Reformed tradition. I would hold to that for different reasons. One would be like in verse 18 of Romans 9. It talks about he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens those he hardens. Well, for him to have mercy, it seems there's already corruption. Okay? And so uh, that's how I would think of God in his decreeing, in his planning. Both camps would believe, remember, that he has a plan ahead of time. But how did he plan it? If you want to find a good source on this that makes it real simple, if I haven't, you can look at Phil Johnson's blog. Just type in Phil Johnson and Lapsarian, or it's Spurgeon.org is the website, so Spurgeon.org, and uh, does a real helpful job there. If you didn't like it that I spent that much time on that question, then you can be mad at whoever asked it. Um, it does become significant, though, because in practical, because and where the debate came is you've got some who are going to hold the superlapsarian view, and they're going to end up saying that we don't need to do anything because it's all fatalism anyway. It's kind of the thinking. And you can now borderline on this is not fair for God to do it this way. And the infra camp said, hey, wait a minute. He's dealing with a fallen race. He gives everybody what they deserve if he damns them. That's just justice. And he chooses some. That's grace. That's how I would think of it. And that's how most theologians would think of it. And I'll leave it at that. We can, ask, we can talk more about it afterward if you'd like. Next question, number eight on my list. It might be your number three. What about the national view of Romans 9? What about the national view of Romans 9? And here's where the question's coming from. Some would read Romans 9 and say, look, this is not talking about individuals. This is not talking about God choosing some and, and not others. This is talking about God choosing Israel and not choosing the other nations. And so discount everything Pat Abendroth says about Romans 9. It's nationalistic. And the first thing I would say, if this is your question, I commend you. Okay? Because when you read Romans 9... Without question, there's a national emphasis. He's quoting Malachi 1, 2, and 3. And he's clearly talking about nations. Genesis 25, 23. Two nations are in your womb. That's what he's quoting in Romans 9. Genesis 32, 28. Genesis 36, 8. But what is true nationally is also true individually. So God talks about Jacob and Esau, who are individuals. He even traces it back to their mother's womb as individuals. Notice also that if you put Romans 8 with Romans 9, remember we added the chapter divisions for simplicity, but if you put them together, it can't be just nationalistic because in Romans 8.28, those whom He has called... And then he unpacks the calling and all the predestinating and all those things in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. He's talking about individuals. There's no way around that. Then he moves into Romans 9 and he's still talking about the calling of God. 
And so read them together and you'll say what was nationalistically true is also individually true. You can read Romans 8, 28, 29, 30. Then Romans 9, 11 talks about his call. Romans 9, 7, even though it's translated named, it's called the Greek word. But that one comes up a lot. It comes up a lot. And by the way, if you're trying to get God off the hook for being fair and not showing favoritism, and so you're going to say nationalistic, well, don't you still have a problem with God's freedom that he's not choosing all nations? He's a choosing God. You're a choosing person. You chose your spouse. Oh, that's so unfair. You're denying all the women of the universe yourself. You know? (laughs) We commend that. You had the freedom to do that. We're talking about God. He has the freedom to do whatever He wants to with His stuff, with His grace. And He extends it as He sees fit. He's not unjust. He's not unfair. He's loving and gracious to give it to anybody. Next question. We get all the time. Does this mean we are robots? Heard that one before? Yeah. Does this mean we're robots? Well, the answer is no, we're not robots. But if you kind of have that attitude, well, then that means we're robots, you know, kind of a bad attitude. I'm going to say, well, you know what? I got news for you. (laughs) You're wet dirt, (laughs) right? Hardened in a kiln. Well, that doesn't help anything. But that's the Apostle Paul's rationale. Right? Because he uses the potter and clay in, in verse 20. The molder saying to the molder, why have you made me like this? In verse 21, the same kind of thing. He has the right over the clay to do what it is he wants to do. And it would be insane to put the potter on trial. And so, it, it is true because, it, 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 let me put it this way, in one sense when we say, well... I know the Romans 9 isn't true at face value. I know the reform perspective isn't true because I know we're not robots. I think if you really stop to think about it and you read Romans 9 and what it does say, I think the real problem ends up being with we don't like it that we're created. And therefore, we are not on the same level as God. So I would translate that when I hear, well, I know we're not robots, or that would make us robots. It's in effect saying that would make us created beings and not peers. Exactly. Exactly. And I know we've got to get from point A, where where this is all new to us, first time we hear it, to point B, where we're with the psalmist in Psalm 135, or with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, or here praising God for this reality. And that's why we're doing this exercise. Now, it is true we're made in God's image. It is true we're called sons, not just clay. We're called all of these other great things. It's not the only illustration in the Bible. But please remember what we talked about last time, and that's how sinful sin is. It's true we're made in God's image, but you might want to read past Genesis 1. You know, something else happens, okay? You might want to read Genesis 3. We're made in God's image, but then what? Then we declare our independence against God. Then we're hostile against God. And then Adam leads the human race into sin. 
To the point where, how about this? In Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, we learn we are now by nature children of wrath. So while we might still be image bearers, the image has been radically perverted and skewed. And what we need is for God to intervene and do something to save because we are all now children of wrath by nature, it says. It's so bad that 1 Peter 1.3 says that God has caused us to be born again. We need God to cause us to be born again. If you're really having a hard time with Romans 9, it's because more than likely you haven't thought through how sinful sin is. That we're by nature children of wrath. We need God to cause us to be born again so that we can believe the gospel. And then all of a sudden you say, God has done all of this? This is grace. See, so many times, too many times, we think of grace as a reward. Just, if you would, please, in your mind right now, Think of what, a simple definition of grace. You probably thought, okay, free gift. That's right. But so many times, so many times, we think of grace as a reward. It goes like this. God was looking to see who would initiate a relationship with Him, who would choose Him, and based upon our choosing Him, He chose us. Well, you get an attaboy for that. You get a reward. For your foreseen faith, God grants you predestination? Salvation? That's not grace. That's merit. That's not the gospel. God has to give us something we didn't earn. That's why we say it's a free gift. Unmerited favor. That's why some theologians have, have helpfully said it's demerited favor because we're not morally neutral. We're actually against Him and He gives us something. See, all this ends up being practical. Romans 9, I realize, is a tall glass of water, you know. It's a, it's a big pill to swallow. But it does come back to the gospel. It does come back to your gospel thinking. Why did Christ come and live righteously? Why did He come and die a sinner's death though He wasn't a sinner? Why did He come and rise again from the dead? Because God foresaw that we would believe in Him. God saw how lovely we were. No. God foresaw, if you will, that we never, ever, 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 ever in a bazillion years would ever reach out to choose Him because by nature we're children of wrath and so He's got to do something if He wants to save anybody. So He comes here because He would foresee nothing good. And He does that for us. All of it for us. That's grace. That's, that's gospel grace. This is so practical in so many ways. Another question is, this is more technical. Um, someone emailed this one. Who are the vessels of wrath in Romans 9.22? Well, look, at, well look, with me if, if, look with me in your Bible. Maybe you could answer this question. That's what I like to do with Q&As. My wife and I have traveled, driven across the country listening to Q&As before, and we just pause it after the question and see if we can answer the question. So hopefully you can answer some of these. Who are the vessels of wrath? And the question goes on to say, 
Is it all of mankind as we are all born in sin and deserve God's wrath? Or is it select ones? That's a great question. But remember, yeah, we're all deserving of wrath, Romans 1. But vessels of wrath in Romans 9 and verse 22 is not talking about all of humanity because if you keep reading in verse 23, you have vessels of mercy. So there's a distinction. And so you would end up looking at it this way, especially if you keep reading in verse 24. You read it this way. All of us are deserving of God's just punishment, but God, with the pool of sinners, if you will, has vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. That seems to be the flow of Romans 9. The next part of the question is, who prepared them for destruction? Did God prepare them for their wickedness? Or did they prepare themselves? The key to that question is reading 19 all the way down to 24. And in 19, the emphasis is on God, He, His will, God, verse 20. uh, God, it's molder, you, referring to God. Verse 21, the potter. Verse 22, you've got vessel, uh, then you get into the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So if you follow 19, 20, 21, and then you get to 22, you see God's in charge, God's in charge, God's in charge. Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. This is something that God does. Something that God ends up doing. Next question is, what do you recommend for further reading? Uh, do you have a pen and a lot of paper? Uh, anything in our bookstore. <laughs> and if you find something in our bookstore that is uh, not in this tradition, please tell us and we would love to get rid of it. Um, but in all seriousness, R.C. Sproul's book called Chosen by God um, is a great one. It's simple, it's small, it's understandable, it's been around for a while. Chosen by God, I, th- I think it's a must read. Uh, it's not difficult at all. I would recommend that highly. I'm going to be at Ligonier this next week, and it's my goal in life to have dinner with R.C., so we'll see if it happens. Um, on the more technical side would be um, The Potter's Freedom by James White. But you're jumping in the deep end of the pool now. So The Potter's Freedom by James White is going to deal with Romans 9 in particular. It's very, very helpful. You know James. He's been here uh, on multiple occasions. Anything by John Piper is going to come from this angle of taking Romans 9 at face value. He has a book on Romans 9, as a matter of fact, more technical. If you want to look online, you can look at Lorraine Bettner, the man with the woman's name, as I always say. Lorraine Bettner's The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. It's very, very helpful. The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Another good website is monergism.com. So I want you to say today, infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism, and monergism. And if you're really going to go for bonus round, no, maybe you shouldn't. What do you think? There's the three big ones you're going to have. I'm thinking syncretism. What's the right word for the opposite of monergism? Synergism. There you go. I knew Ron could could answer it. How was preaching at the jail today? Awesome. Awesome. John Slack told me it was rocking. Standing room only. It's pretty good. Monergism is a great word because it's mono, one working, okay? I know we're being theologically technical here, but this is a significant reality that I can, I can use to preach the gospel. Monergism, mono working, God saves. Synergism, if you find a website called synergism.com, don't go there, okay? That, 
That's the rival. That's actually probably, a, you know, some computer company, so it's okay, or a staffing thing or something. But the reality is, biblical Christianity is going to be monergistic. God saves. God causes us to be born again. God is the one. That's why God saves by His grace. He's the one doing it. There's not this partnership. God does His part. We do our part. That would be synergism. And every religion other than Christianity in one way or another is synergistic. Some of them who say they're Christian are synergistic. God sees what you do first. He responds to you. You work together. You get to heaven. You do high fives to each other. And that's not the picture we get in the Bible. We're on our face as monergists, right? Worthy is the Lamb who takes away our sin. That's what we do. Monergism.com is a helpful website because it has lots of these kinds of things And I found it to be helpful. Now, if you say, this is all too theological for me. Um, I just can't relate to any of those things. Give me someone I can really understand. Um, Read, I would say, anything by Johnny Erickson Tata. Okay? And she will recommend Lorraine Bettner's book to you. Okay? I love writers like that who own these theological things and it impacts the way they write and the way that they think and the way they do ministry. Read anything by Jerry Bridges. He's got this mindset and he might not use the controversial words, but it's all over the place if you know what to look for. I find it so helpful. So hopefully those are some good resources. Next question is, what about passages like John 1? Turn with me, if you would, to John 1. This is just one sample passage because you read Romans 9 and you say, okay, I can't quite believe that because there are so many passages that don't fit with this kind of theology. So clearly Romans 9 can't mean what it really says. And a big one is John chapter 1. So let's just use that as a sample. If you feel like this is a classroom, then I hope you like it. (laughs) <laughs> I'm taking a class this week. Maybe I'm just getting ready for it. I don't know. But uh, in my, my motives are pastoral to say, let, let's have this be a growing time and learning time and not take some of these things for granted. John 1, look at verse 12. This is one you'll, you'll hear if you're, you're proclaiming sovereign grace. It's God, not man. R- verse 12 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that is just a great, great, great verse that, by the way, doesn't contradict anything in Romans 9. All who did receive Him. But sometimes you hear an objection, but, but the Bible says all who receive Him He gives them, they believed in His name, and He gives them the right to become children of God. And I say, I agree with that totally, but read verse 13. 13 says, who were born, the context would be not, not physically, this is spiritually, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. They were born again. How is it that you can have verse 12? How can you receive Him? How can you believe in Him so that He will give you the right to become children of God? You have to be born of God to have that happen. And that's what, he, that's what Jesus does in John 3, by the way, where he talks about the Spirit of God blowing wherever, wherever it is the Spirit of God wants to go, sovereignly speaking. You, you can't say, I know where it's going. You can see its effect. You can see where it's been. And he's talking about salvation. Sovereignly moving like the wind. 
I love John 1.12. You should too, but just don't forget verse 13. Ultimately, we must believe, yes, but where does that ability come from if we were dead in trespasses and sins? Ephesians 2 comes from God. It comes from God. God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise. I love John 1. Next question. Does Romans 9 teach fatalism? Does Romans 9 teach fatalism? Maybe I can answer it on two different fronts. Of course I'm going to say no. (laughs) The reason Romans 9 is not fatalistic is because Romans 9 is talking about people who deserve to be condemned because they're sinners. Read Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and it's all about responsibility for sin. If you're a sinner, you're responsible for your sin. It's not fatalism. It's responsibility because we're all sinners. That's different than fatalism. And then think about the saving part. If God chooses to save some... He doesn't do it in a fatalistic sense, like uh, it's some uh, detached, without person, uh, personal touch or anything like that. Read Ephesians 1 sometimes, verse 4. In love He predestined us. Personal. He makes us sons, right? He cares. He loves. So it's not wind it up and let it go and it has nothing to do with anything. No human responsibility. No care. No concern. That would be classic fatalism. The Bible does not teach fatalism. There's no way you could read Romans 8, personal, 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 then into 9 and say, this is fatalism. Well, you could say it, but philosophically, it's not, it's not fatalism. Next question. What about free will? How much time do we have? <laughs> well, I preached, I preached a whole sermon on this, so I would commend it to you, and I don't want to re-preach it right now. Um, what about free will? Well, I guess the first person who can find free will in the Bible in the realm of salvation, um, I'll give you $100. It's not there. In Philemon, it talks about a slave being released, not under compulsion, but by free will, but it's not talking about salvation. Free will is highly overrated. It is, it is as John Owen said years and years ago, it is an idol. We bow down. What about free will, free will, free will, free will, free will? How about this? Ephesians Again, one, two, and three. By nature, children of wrath. We all live consistent with our nature. You're free to live in according to your nature. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to sin freely. Apart from God intervening, causing you to be born again, you are a slave to your will. Or you're free to live in light of what your will is. Read Romans 6 sometime. It talks about being slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Sin is so bad and we are so fallen, if you will, that yeah, we're free. We're free to sin. What we need is God to intervene, if you will, against our will and to cause us to be born again and to work in our lives. Read John 1. Read John 3. Read 1 Peter. It's all over the place. God is not saying, well, once they all, once I see, I would never want to be, you know, some kind of imposing God. 
And so I'll just wait for them to choose me according to their own free will. Well, we would all be in hell forever because we would never choose Him. Ever. Read Romans 3. No one does good, no, not one. Wages of sin is death. So God, because He's loving and kind and gracious, comes here and and lives righteously for us and dies a sinner's death for us and rises again from the dead for us so that all who would believe in Him would have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. And by the way, none of us actually believe in total freedom. If you even start on the physical side of things, you see how ridiculous it is. Just physically, you don't believe in absolute freedom. that You're not bound by anything. Go downtown, First National Building. We'll all stand down there and say, go for it. Jump. You're free. You're not bound by any laws. And then we'll go to your funeral. Right? We are bound by our nature. And spiritually, we're bound by our nature. And we're enslaved to sin. That's why Jesus came here. That's why He came here. Read John 6. Read John 10. We looked at it last time. People were so mad at Jesus for preaching sovereignty of God. John 6.66, a bunch of His followers said, Enough already. I don't like that. Jesus sounds too much like a Calvinist. They probably didn't say that. But it was that kind of controversy. I can't believe I said that. Just have a few more questions and we'll make them quick. How can a person know if they're predestined or elect or chosen by God? I would go back to John 6 that we looked at last week. And we looked at it for a different reason. But in John 6, it says, All the Father gives me will come to me. That's what we looked at last time. The Father has to give them to the Son. But then he goes on to say, And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. How can you know? You know if you go to Christ. And I'm even in good biblical company if I say to you, go to Christ. Run to Christ. Believe in Christ. It is an imperative. It's imperative that you go to Christ. You believe in Christ and you will be saved. And Jesus makes the promise right there in John 6.37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But as you're going to Christ, there's the proof right there. The Father gave you to the Son and that's why you're going. A lot of times we don't know that right away. But you look back and you look how God saved you if He's done that and you say, I thought I did it. And I did believe and you must believe. But then you start learning more and more and you say, how did I believe if I was dead in trespasses and sin? God intervened. The Father gave me to the Son. He gets all the credit. John 6.40 says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in His name should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So look to the Son. Believe in the Son. That 
alone is enough for you to say, God has done something even to bring me to this point. I would also say live for Christ. How can you know if you're chosen by God? How can you know if you're predestined? Well, you believe in Christ. And and, and you say, but I want some more assurance. Well, keep looking to Christ. But you know what else you could do? You can live to serve Him and to honor Him. And then you're like those 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You know, you want to make your, your, make, you want to be sure? He says, then, then live for Christ and live for His honor and live for His glory. And, and then you'll see, hey, I'm a new creation. I'm different than I used to be. I must be born again. God must have, uh, have birthed me by His Spirit because I'm a different person. When we live for Christ, we, we have an assurance that there's a calling. There's an election. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. What does this do to our evangelism is the next question. What is this going to do? Well, in an answer, it should just throw gas on it. On the fire. Evangelism? Man, you know how freeing this is? To, to, to say, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Let's go. Let, let's go knowing, read the book of Revelation, that there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will be saved. So let's preach Christ anywhere and everywhere knowing that there's going to be effectiveness. Now, we don't know who the elect are. You don't have the E on your forehead. Or, you know, check the collar. And to see, you know, is there Ephesians 1, 4 label or not? Or do you wear this Claiborne, you know? <laughs> That's not it at all. But we're, we preach Christ everywhere. Calling people to believe in Christ. And, and when they do believe, we know why it is they actually believed and where, where the credit is due. Or how about Acts chapter 13? I love to quote this. I do it often, so I'll do it again. Acts 13, 48. All those who have been appointed unto eternal life. What? Anybody, please. Believed, right? How freeing is that? The Apostle Paul preaching Christ to people, all those who had been appointed unto eternal life, they believed. So what do we do? We don't think, hmm, let's figure out a new sales strategy. Let, you know, let's go take some kind of Zig Ziglar closing technique seminar or whoever the new guy is, Tony Robbins, or I don't know who the gurus are. Let's figure it out. And then we can convert a lot of people. No, let's figure out Romans 9 and the sovereignty of God and predestination and election in Acts 13, 48. And we can go and preach Christ boldly, knowing that it's not us. And then you work through history. This, this is what fueled Spurgeon's mind. He would have been amening the whole... He's a Baptist. He would have been amening this whole sermon in Romans 9. Or the Careys, the great missionaries, or the Whitfields, or the Bunyans, or all these people that we know historically as great evangelists, the Whitfields. They knew these things and it motivated them. It didn't hold them back. Final question is, what is the right response to Romans 9? I think maybe the best way to put it is Psalm 135. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. The God who, verse 6, does whatever he pleases. Oh yeah, he's different. He's different from everybody. He's different from all the idols. He's God. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and for 
questions that people have to the degree, Lord, where folks are questioning you instead of just asking questions. Pray that you would grant a spirit of humility. We wouldn't question you, that we would look to your word for questions to our real answers. And Lord, in the days ahead, may we worship you differently than we have. Lord, I plead with you to make us more like the psalmist in Psalm 135. And to make us more motivated for proclaiming Christ. To not just be okay with you being God, but to be thrilled about it. Lord, work in our midst in this kind of way. Encourage us. Do what, what only you can do. Soften hearts so that we might give you the praise and worship that you and you alone deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.